That's right. And uh, yeah, you may have been wondering, Helmer, don't you know the deal? Uh, we do a lot of songs right now, and then we open God's Word a little bit later, and then we finish with the song. That's kind of how this gig works. And well, um, guess what? Today's a little bit different. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be digging into God's Word here, um, and then we're going to respond out of that with song. You know, I remember growing up thinking that the reason you do the music is just to get to the Bible stuff. And uh, I've matured out of that and realizing that, no, 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 wait, that singing time, that time that we have to worship and lift the name of Jesus, I, that is critical. We're called to do that and be that. So we're going to go to the Word. Uh, today, I've kind of designed this to where I want us to get some facts out of this today and then use those facts as we sing. Okay, you ready? All right, that's what we're going to do. Joshua chapter 11, uh, that's where we are at. Now, this is the last of what I'm kind of calling the last of the war chapters in Joshua for the most part. Um, Joshua is, the book is set up where chapters 2 to 12 is kind of the conquest of the promised land. In other words, that's the time where the Israelites come in and take over the main sections, the main cities and capitals and uh, so forth, kings of the promised land. And then uh, chapter 13, uh, almost to the end, is more about settling into the promised land. And So we're about to wrap something up here. So this is the last of the war chapters. Next Sunday, keys in on this whole list of kings. I mean, it's just a chapter list of kings. Those are usually the chapters that you like skip right by. Well, guess what? That's the chapter I gave Pastor Cody. Um, so he's going to be, he's going to be taking that chapter, but it's really important. <laughs> okay. It, it, it is, it's good stuff. He's got that next Sunday. Then we're going to start that settlement section. It's really talking about the inheritance and Pastor Eric is going to be picking that up. And just so you know, a little bit of what's going on. Well, as I mentioned, we're in kind of the last of these war and carnage chapters and uh, one of the things about these chapters, I will say certainly for me, and I think as I've talked with some of you as well, um, in our cultural worldview and kind of our sentimental uh, perspective on things, these war chapters really push our buttons. I mean, they kind of press on us and they, they cause us to ask some questions. And, and, and I think it, out of this, we kind of come to this cartoon I had seen the other day. And it's like, yo, dog, you know, this is like, you're getting in my grill. Uh, maybe it's Yo Doug, uh, you're getting in my grill. But this is very much what happens out of these chapters. How do we process this when there's so much carnage? And by the way, God is in this. What do we do with this? And, and one of the things I've, over these weeks, it's kind of been a bit of a burden constantly reading about all this war and I've been doing quite a behind, bit of behind the scenes research. And one of the things I've been picking up out of this is in the discussions out of commentaries and so forth, it rightfully we go in and we start addressing why God is doing some of these things. And I think it's kind of trying to address it to where, let's go to the next slide, because we're kind of going like that. It's like, what's happening here in these? And I think part of what's going on in this is we are asking the right questions of, why war? I mean, why all the war and gore? Why all this? Why can't we just get along? Like, why can't the coexist bumper stickers be for real? You know, and what about the carnage and and seriously, is this just Christianized jihad that's going on? Um, why would God allow bad things like this? These chapters press us on these, and they push us on these. But as I've been just wrestling through this, I talked to my wife on Monday that um, something's just been sticking out to me I kind of want to address today, and I want to use this chapter to do that. And I think that in the questions, and by the way, I love people that think, and I love people that ask questions. And I actually think as a culture and a society, we've become bad, poor, weak at asking questions of depth and questions of, of real significance because we're so entertained. But I have a question. Why does it seem like in these... God comes across within our own minds as the bad guy. 
somehow we so quickly and easily ask this thing of like, God, you, you need to explain yourself. I, I'm like, right now, I'm, I'm not quite trusting you in this. I understand that. I understand the questions. I understand why we ask the questions. They're viable, and I'm okay with that, and I love people that ask it. But I think there's a problem within the questions that are being asked, and I would wrap it as this. The facts are being lost. The, the, the bare-bones facts of what the problem is is being lost in the argument of the situation. And, and uh, so I, I want to work today on trying to go to the chapter, see this, and, and then talk about some facts. Why the war? Why the carnage? And why is God not the bad guy? Friends, God is the good guy. And I want us to see that today. God, I pray as we dig into this passage that you would just, uh, I pray it one more time, show yourself. Help us to get you increasingly so. Maybe even some of the talk I've already brought up, some people haven't even been thinking those. Maybe they have, I don't know. But God, I just ask you would show more of you. You've created us in such a way that we have the ability to ask. We have the ability to choose. And I just pray you would give us the insight to be able to see more of you and the facts of the reality of our world. Show us more of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Joshua chapter 11, let's get going. Starting in verse one. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, heard of what? Well, if you've been here for a while, we've been talking about uh, chapters one through 10. In other words, they've heard about the war. They've heard about the Southern conquest. I'll bring that back here in just a minute here that we talked about last Sunday. They've been hearing about these things. So when he heard of this, he sent the Jobab, king of uh, Madon and the king of Shimron and the king of Achshaph. Oh, that's a hard one to say. And to the kings who were in the Northern hill country in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth and the lowland and then the Naphath Dor. Does this not sound like Lord of the Rings? I mean, <laughs> all these names going on here. Uh, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Jebusites in the hill country, the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Doug, I have no idea what any of this means. Okay, let's, let's bring up some satellite maps here and let's kind of get our bearings geographically and what's going on. And first one here, you can see these are some cities on a satellite map of the area that we've already come to know. Uh, Jericho, we saw that battle. Uh, Ai, we saw the battles of Ai. Uh, uh, what's the up one north? Uh, uh, Shechem, they were up there, and that's where they all congregated together for uh, a worship time. Built the altar, wrote uh, wrote God's word in their own font uh, on that altar. That whole thing that was going on. Gilgal has kind of become the place to where it's like the main central headquarters. And in fact, in Joshua chapter one, eleven, that's where they are at this point in time. So that's been the cities we've known. Then in Joshua chapter 10 from last Sunday, uh, I didn't use a map last Sunday on purpose, but now you can see, and this is generally kind of the flow of the conquest here. Um, some of the cities, we're not quite sure where they're at, but it just gives you a general idea of what was happening here in the conquest and taking over these major cities that were listed in Joshua chapter 10. So now in Joshua chapter 11, we come to these new kings and these new cities. And can you see how it's all in the Northern area? Joshua chapter 10 is the Southern conquest. Joshua chapter 11 is a Northern what happens is, is this is just God is so wise, obviously knowing what's what. He has the Israelites. Why didn't they come from just straight up? Well, what he did is he had them come in, kind of cut straight across the center of the Canaanite or the promised land territory, cut it in half, and then conquer the south. And now we're going to see them coming and taking taking the north section. So I hope that gets your bearings on that. So the, these kings and these places in the northern terry, territory, uh, what did they do? Verses four and five, here's what they did. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore. Say a lot. 
that's a lot of people. That's the point of the text. He's getting to, it wasn't just like a few people. It wasn't like a bunch of country bumpkins got together. It was like this massive collection of people who are in that er- territory. They all come and they all gather together. Verse five, or I'm sorry, end of verse four, uh, like the sand on the seashore with many horses and chariots. Uh, honestly, that doesn't really impress us a whole lot. Horses and chariots just throw a drone in there and take them out. Back in that day, this is the technology. You really need to understand, these were the tanks of the day. So uh, the, re- the writer is helping us to understand the territory as well as the technology. Israelites didn't have chariots and horses like this. They're, they're more the country bumpkins. They were on foot. And so these guys had the tanks. That's what it's telling us. Verse five, and all these kings, they joined their forces and they came and they encamped together at the waters of Merom to do what? To fight with Israel. We've been talking about this week after week with this massive collection of this high-tech army, uh, as many as sand on the seashore, all coming together with their tanks. They're all there to wipe out the Israelites, and they gather at the waters of Merom in this territory, and they gather there to fight. And I have to ask the question again, as I've been asking for the last weeks, why fight? Why not fall? Why not fall before Yahweh rather than fighting Yahweh? Why not do that? But we've talked about that. James chapter four, there's a war within us. This is just such a telling reality of our own hearts and, and what's going on and in the land there. And, and I, you know, we can also understand. I mean, Doug, it's like, come on, man. I mean, this is their land and it's their people and it's their stuff and their destiny. And someone's coming in and taking that out. And they're taking out my home and my people and my stuff and, and my destiny. And I would just pause right there for a second. While we can understand that, I would also throw in there, that's the heart of the problem. The land that you and I or they own, it's not ours. It's not. The home, if you got it paid off, way to go. But it's not yours. The people. I understand. I mean, we love our peeps. We love our families and, and each other in this. And, and yet ultimately, um, who's the creator? And the fact is, is that these Canaanites in this land, because this is right at the point where we can understandably get pretty sympathetic to these people because these Israelites are coming in and pillaging their stuff. Let me set a little bit of background here on the Canaanites. The fact is is that the Canaanites have hoarded everything in this land for centuries now. God has allowed them to be in this land, Genesis 15, 16. God has been long-suffering in this whole time. It says centuries and centuries and centuries that God has been long-suffering until the end of 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 his patience with them. And in this whole time that they have been there, what in this, that as God has allowed them to live there in his place, in his land, what have they done? They have done unspeakable wickedness for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. And now on top of that, they want to fight God. Where's the justice, I ask? God has been patient with these people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And during those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, do you realize that those people committed infanticide in in, in disgusting kind of ways? And you may say, well, yeah, we have abortion today. But yeah, let me top that out with this. They would take their born children. Not just brand newborn, but their children, and they would burn them alive on altars to their fake gods. We wouldn't even allow that to happen today. I don't care where someone is in their mindset. And they had been doing that for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I say, where's the justice for those infants? And these are a people that for centuries and centuries and centuries... 
They have been using and abusing women in the name of worship. And where's the justice for them? And I could go on and on and on and on, friends, with the unspeakable wickedness of these people living in this place over the centuries. It's all documented in history. Where's the justice? It's coming. God is bringing the justice in. Hey, friends, God did not start the fight. We'll hit that in a little bit. Verse 6. So they all gather. They want to go to war. Verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their technology and burn it all. I have to add one more time, as I've done almost every week for the last three or four weeks. How sweet of God. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows who, where, is, who, who, where, who is who, however that said. <laughs> he knows who people are. He knows the details of what's going on. And God shows up right at this time in this. And he says, listen, Joshua, I just want for you to know, again, I'm reassuring you. And again, it's not new truth that's needed. It's old truth reapplied. We talked about that this last week. It's old truth, freshly applied. That's what we need. And that's what God does. How sweet. Let's do some reading. Verse 7. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. In other words, they went to battle. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephah. And eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. Now, you got the picture? They came up from Gilgal. War took place, and this army with the best technology of the day, and as many warriors as the sand on the seashore, hightailed it out. God is the warrior. God fights for his people. Verse 9, and Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. What obedience. He hamstrung their horses, burned their chariots with fire. Verse 10, and Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor, and struck its king with the sword. Very interesting. Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. I just bring to our attention, leadership carries additional burden. Leadership carries additional accountability. Verse 11, and they struck the sword, all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. And there was none left that breathed. Friends, I don't even want to get into that. But we are so desensitized to the reality of the situation. This was hand-to-hand combat. I cannot even fathom this. And this meant the destruction of the men and the women and the children. Uncomfortable. Verse 12, and all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock and the, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed, any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses' servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing done of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, in my Bible right there at the end of verse 15, I have a line. I've drawn a line and I've just kind of made an arrow under that for everything under this. Verse 16 to the end of the chapter, what we're about to read is kind of a step out. What we just read was the northern conquest. We'll come back. What we're about to read is actually a summation of the whole conquest, okay? 
just so you know. So I kind of have a line here to remind me. It's a summary of the conquest. So let's start with that summary. Verse 16. Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev and the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah, the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Holoc, uh, which rises towards Seir as far as Belgod in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all of these kings. I need to pause there and make a, a context for us. Because if you've been here for the series, in the, in the beginning chapters of Joshua, actually we had a number of chapters that took, take place within like a month, six weeks of time. And all of a sudden we've just been reading a few chapters where when you kind of have that mojo going, like it's just kind of going quickly, you get this idea like the southern campaign was kind of like they leave Gilgal and they go to Gibeon and you know, and they take them all over and then they, and then the next day they go to the next city and, oh, and that happens. And then the next day, the next, and that whole little loop that I had earlier on there, it was like, I don't know, was that a week? No, a whole long time. Here's the point of the context. This whole conquest campaign, the actual military endeavors of this, we'll find out of Joshua 14 when we get there, it was seven years. This has now been seven years of time, and this is an important reality because it kind of puts a context in our mind of this southern campaign process, this northern campaign process. Now I understand why they heard so much about what had been going on down south because this wasn't in a week period of time. This was over months and months and even some years of time, and people were able to get ready for even the battle with all that's taking place. So when it says it's a long time, that's how long. Uh, Verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. And I go back, remember we talked about that out of Deuteronomy chapter 20, and it's like the Gibeonites, they found the loophole in the program. And they came in, and I don't even think that they necessarily believed in Yahweh. I think they found a legal loophole in it, but I'm going to add this. But God in his mercy, even if there was a 1% chance that they might come to him, he spares them. But why don't all these other people fall? Why are we so that way? Why is it so easy to be about my way and not Yahweh's way? It's just in us. Verse 20, the head scratcher. The one that most pastors would just prefer to bypass. (laughs) But I can't. Verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. By the way, that's very important to carry the whole sentence through. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should go come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should not receive any mercy but be destroyed. Wait a second. So has God uh, doomed them? Hmm. We'll come back. <laughs> Let's keep reading. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country. If you know, if you're one who knows your Bible, the Anakim are kind of descendants of the Nephilim, the, the big dudes. Uh, from Hebron and Deborah, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. And Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. Even the big guys went down. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and the Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land. It's the second time, third time, I think, actually, that's been stated now, second time. According to the the Lord spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel. We'll learn about that in chapter 13. According to their tribal last allotments. And the, look at the last sentence here. We'll just talk about it briefly at the very end of our time. And the Lord and the land had rest from war. Heavy stuff. And it's understandable to read a passage like this. And especially after we spent the time with it, kind of to respond like this. Our guy, what's going on? God, I'm confused. And I'm a bit uncomfortable. I'm a bit uncomfortable about all the war and gore. And uh, what's up with all that? Why all the war and the gore? And also, I think it's right to say, and what in the world is up with verse 20? 
Because in all this, there's an aspect to where it's like, I don't want to say this, but there's a part of this where I'm starting to feel like there's a thing in the back of my mind. It's like, is God the bad guy? So let's talk. And let's try and get some facts on the table. Let's go back to the first question. Why the war in the gore? Why the war in the gore? Well, answer, Satan and sin. Satan and sin. First, let's talk about Satan. Let's just get some data and some reality on the table. Grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 begins with Adam and Eve are already created. Genesis chapter 3, uh, we find Satan uh, peering himself out here. And when I'm talking about, let's get some facts on the table about Satan, I want to get some facts on the table about Satan as how he relates with people. Okay? Verse 1, chapter 3 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, by the way, it's kind of like, you know, Disney. The animals are talking. By the way, why not? Why not? There's no sin. Hmm. I don't know the answer to that one. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Why is he asking? Hmm. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Way to go, girl. She's exactly right. She's spot on. She knew what God had said, and she's repeating back what God had said. And wouldn't you think that if Satan cared about Eve, that if he wanted the best for her, that he would stand down? But that's not what Satan is about. Satan doesn't want the best for Eve. Satan doesn't want the best for Adam. So what does he do? He lies. So the serpent said to the woman, Oh, come off it. You, that's in there. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You liar. You dirtbag liar. You don't care about her. What's this ultimately about? This is ultimately about Satan is in a war with God. That's what's happening here. And Satan doesn't care a lick about Eve. In fact, Satan is the one who wants to use Eve as his pawn. Wants to use Eve for whatever kind of thing he could do because he knows out of this that death will come. And he doesn't care. Listen. That's the fact of Satan in relationship with Adam and Eve. Could care less. Let's go on ahead a little bit. Satan and Job. Job chapters 1 and 2. You can go and you can read that. I encourage you to do that this week. An amazing, amazing encounter. An amazing encounter with God and Satan. And what ends up happening. And what ends up happening is God allows Satan to be able to to, uh, do what Satan does best. And that's destroy And he allows that to happen because he literally, I think out of the text, wants Job to be a testimony to Satan. Job doesn't know this is going on. So what does Satan do? Satan goes and kills Job's kids. He kills Job's servants. He destroys all of his business, everything he has. Now, let's just take that uh, for its face value. So are you telling me that Satan cares about people? Not. Hey, who's the puppets in the game now? Listen, from Satan's perspective, we are the puppets in his game. And he'll use us however he wants, for whatever purposes he wants, and he could care less what happens because he's in a war with God. Fact, Satan with Jesus. Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has been fasting for some 40 days. He's in the desert there. And then Satan shows up. Yeah, what a wimp. What a time to show up. (laughs) Hey, you hungry? Do some razzmatazz, my friend. You think Satan really cared about Jesus' nutrition intake? And then it's like, hey, let's take you to the top of the temple. Go ahead, fall down. 
Just do a little bit more razzmatazz. Just show how awesome you are. I mean, it's all about your glory. And then he takes them to the top of the mountains. Hey, if you fall down and worship me, you can have all this. That's an interesting statement because ultimately it's not his, but yet there's an aspect of this where God casts Satan to earth. And so there's a part of it that maybe is a bit true in the present realm of the reality of it where he's like, this is my home. You, you, you want some of my home, man? Just fall down and worship me. Do you think Satan was really trying to benefit Jesus Christ? No, no, This was ultimately about the war with the Godhead. Let's go to Judas. Luke 22, I believe. Luke 22, it talks about how in that, that uh, uh, a Judas, uh, Satan enters Judas. By the way, I don't think that in this, I think that's one of the clues that we have that, that Judas was not a redeemed believer in Christ because I just don't see in the Bible redeemed people being uh, ent- Satan entering them. He can influence but not enter them. And so here he does. And in this, it's kind of like, listen, Judas, I'm telling you, man, it's about the money. It's about the cashola. That's what'll make you happy, buddy. And by the way, this whole Jesus dude you've been following around for all these years, I'm telling you, it's a scam, man. He's just scamming you. I don't know. I don't know how the conversation went. I'm just kind of imagining, but something like that. And Judas is like, yeah, I'm doing the cash gig. So he turns him in. And then later, Judas hangs himself. I have a question. Do you think that Satan shed any kind of a tear when Judas hung himself? Not at all. What about in the future? You can go to Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation chapter 12, it talks about how Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. It talks about how he is the accuser. It also says in Revelation 12 that he, knows his time, that he knows his time is short. In Revelation 13, it talks about he blasphemes God. It says that he makes war on the saints in the end times who come to Christ. And on top of that, at the end of chapter 13, it talks about the mark of the beast. And, and the people who do not get the mark of the beast, they can't buy or, or get things. Wouldn't you think that if Satan cared about people, he wouldn't do that? The fact of the matter is he doesn't. And I just want to bring the facts to the table, folks. Satan is the bad guy. And I have yet in my research in these discussions to have the talk come out and reminding us who's the bad guy? Who's brought the chaos into this world? Satan has. That's the fact of the matter. And the fact of the matter is, by the way, he doesn't care a lick at all about you or me or anybody. He's fine to use you or me for whatever he wants to do. And do know this, he's hunting you down. And he'd love to take your eyes off the prize. And the fact of the matter is, is I think he's done a fantastic job of apathy in our country. See, you don't need to do jihad. Just get people apathetic and they're irrelevant. He wants to neutralize you. And he's the bad guy. That's the fact. Why war and gore? Satan. Also, why war and gore? Sin. Let's just consider some facts on sin. Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve with the ability to choose. Adam could have said no. Eve could have said no, but they didn't. Genesis 6, time of Noah. Genesis 6 says that every inclination of man on the earth was wicked. 
In fact, God in this, he steps back and he's like, I almost wish I wouldn't have done this. Why? Because sin was so prevalent on the earth. And then we go to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Mankind wants to make a name for itself. That's not what we're about. That's what we were not created for that. Our name is to be about the name of the Lord God. And they wanted to create their own name. And it was wrong. It was sin. It was pride. Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, the sin is so great. God's just like, I got to destroy it. And then it's so interesting. Abraham has this talk with God. Oh God, but is there any mercy? I love that. I love that he's wrestling some of the same things we're trying to wrestle out. God, if there's 50 people in Sodom and Gomorrah who are righteous, would you then save the city? Yeah. How about if there were 40? Yeah. How about 30? Literally, these are the numbers. How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? What do we see here out of the heart of God? I want to give mercy. But the sin is so prevalent, so long, so long, justice has to come. If there would have been 10, God would have spared the city and there weren't. The exodus, because let's just not make it about other people. It's about God's people too. God brings his people out mightily, does an amazing work. And what do we find him doing not too long afterwards? Whining and complaining, the food, the this, it was better in Egypt. And not only that, we find him building a golden cow to bow to. You just see we're bent to sin. In fact, let's read a little bit about that. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Why the war and gore? Because the sin of mankind is even at war with God. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has, made, has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God's not withholding himself. God's not trying to play peekaboo. Come and see me and then I'll see you. No, God's showing from the very beginning. He's like, basically, he's just saying, look around ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Hmm, but verse 20, chapter 11, <laughs> we'll come back. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature, not the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another when committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get approval to them who practice them. Chapter 3, verse 10, uh, 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I don't like talking about this. 
I would so rather talk about happy bunnies. But we can't understand the truth of God if we don't understand these facts. And friends, because of Satan and because of sin, you and I don't even need Satan around us to sin. In fact, James chapter 1 verse 14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his, by her own desire. That's why sometimes I think the statement, the devil made me do it, is a bit of a cop-out. So why the war and the carnage in Joshua, Doug? Because Satan is at war with God. And because the Canaanites were willing participants in sin. Satan started the fight with God. And he's hell-bent on continuing it on out. That's the fact. That's the fact. So I ask, where's the justice? But maybe you're still stuck on verse 20, and I understand that. Let's talk about verse 20 for a little bit. Because, Doug, if it's sin, verse 20 is kind of throwing that all a bit in a uh, dink here. Because verse 20, it says here that for it was the Lord's doing that hardened their hearts. Let's talk about that just for a little bit. You can walk out of that and go, really, they didn't have any choice. That's what it's saying. That God manipulated them. That God railroaded them into this. That they could actually stand before God one day and be able to go, listen, you made me do it. I understand the question. First, let's just pause and consider a couple things about God that is said about the character of the Lord from Scripture. Number one, God is holy. He is set apart. The Bible tells us that God has never sinned. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is just. He loves, he cares. And we could just go to passage and passage and passage and fill out the characteristics of the Lord. Also, I want to add into this a little about the Lord, James chapter one, verse 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Did you hear that? He tempts no one. But wait a second. Back in verse 20, it says the Lord hardened their heart. Doesn't that sound the same? No, no, but Romans chapter one says all are without excuse. We can't blame it on God. Okay, so so I'm just laying those out. I'm not clarifying the issue right at the moment, but just laying some things out about God. God doesn't tempt people to sin. Well, let's let scripture define scripture for verse 20. When you read verse 20, you have to think of Exodus chapter seven through 14. Exodus 7.14 is when Moses comes before Pharaoh and all the plagues take place. And the terminology that's used here in the language in verse 20, it so mirrors what is said back then. And let me just mention some of the things back then. Exodus chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In verse 22 of chapter 7, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. In chapter 8 of Exodus, verse 15, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. In verse 19, guess what it says? It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Oh yeah, and also in verse 32 of chapter 8. Then in chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then in chapter 9, verses 34 to 35, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, does it not sound like Pharaoh made that choice? Yeah? It does, doesn't it? Because you see, again and again and again and again after these plagues are taking place, the text talks about and Pharaoh acknowledges the fact that he's hardened his heart to these people. And no way, he's not giving squat to them of any kind of mercy. But then it's what's interesting. All of a sudden in Exodus chapter 10 verse 1, the text says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then in chapter 10 verse 20, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Heart. And then in verse 27, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then in Exodus chapter 11, verse 10, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How can both happen? Well, Pharaoh had um, declared and had done the reality of hardening his heart. He did it. He owned up to it. 
We saw that again and again, and it's interesting in the text of Exodus, that's the, clearly the first things that come out on the table. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God's hardening is God firmed up the resolve that was already there. For the thing that was at hand at the time, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not not giving him a choice. He had already been making the choice and God in it was strengthening his resolve to respond in a certain way to the particular thing at hand. God's hardening work stands in the background of what was happening. God is not forcing people to take a path they would not otherwise have taken. There is no way in heaven that when Pharaoh stands before God and he sees the whole picture of what takes place, he's going to go, you made me do it. That will never happen. He's, he, us talking about that to Pharaoh, he would be like, what are you talking about? I did that. That's the reality of what was happening. And Pharaoh is fully responsible for his acts, but yet they are also taking place within God's purposes. And so in Joshua, what's happening is God's decision to have Israel invade Canaan forces the kings of the land to make responses according to what was already their natural inclination. They were already hell-bent on taking them out. But rather than manipulate them, or rather than override each of the leaders' wills, God gives them good reasons to follow their own inclinations. He's sealing the deal. That's why it's so important when you read this, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. It's not saying it in general and in all situations. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. They had already resolved. And yet God steeled it within them. It's like, let's get on with the program. Genesis 15, 16 is now coming to its conclusion. I've had patience and long suffering enough with all of these infants burned to death and these women misused for centuries and centuries. And now justice is coming. And God strengthened or stiffened their resolve to do it. It was their choice. That's what's being said. Fact. That's the fact. Lastly, one more piece of fact. A little fact on God. God is bringing mercy and justice into the chaos of Satan and sin. Hey friends, if I'm just going to say it this way. God is the good guy. God is the good guy. I mean, just consider redemptive history, Adam and Eve. God is the one that brings justice and mercy into the situation. Adam and Eve were not God's pawns. Adam and Eve were created with the ability to choose. Satan was the one who saw them as pawns. Satan is the puppet master in the reality of it. And they had the ability to choose, and yet God brings justice in it and mercy in it. There are consequences of sin, but he also provides in that he doesn't wipe them out. And on top of that, he provides the promise in Genesis chapter 3 there that he will bring one that will bring a wipeout blow on Satan himself. And then in Noah's day, God saw that every intention thought of man was evil continually. And so God brings justice. He brings the flood, but he also brings mercy in saving people. He brings mercy in the rainbow. Tower of Babel. Mankind wants to be God. God brings justice in it and mercy in it. Sodom and Gomorrah, God brings justice and mercy in it. The golden calf is in it. God brings justice and mercy in it. Romans chapter one through re-reality. That's the thing where God steps in in the reality of sin upon sin and upon sin. And he is the father that welcomes the returning son. That's who God is. Fall and repent and he's welcoming back. He's the one who brought redemption and made it available. He's the good guy. And friends, we need to see the facts right. Because do you see at the end of verse 23? The land had rest from war. 
The, the, the whole end of the uh, chapter 11, it talks about land, land, land. Chapter 12 talks about kings, kings, kings. Chapter 13 talks about inheritance, inheritance, inheritance. And it talks about the land here. And listen, think about this. In war, land has no peace. Birds don't chirp in war. Trees don't flow in the breeze and are beautiful in war. They're blown up. They're shredded to pieces. They're ripped apart. Who's the one who's doing it? The one who started the war. And what happens when God brings his set-apart people in, takes out the wickedness of the land, bringing his set-apart people to become a nation of priests to the world? God is the one who brings peace and rest. And I'm so just kind of broken. And I'm just so kind of concerned that we've lost sight of who's the bad guy. And it's not God. He brings 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin. That's unfair. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We don't deserve that. That's unfair. But God did that. Oh, friends, we need to have the facts and we need to sing it out. That's what's happening. I know right now you're so used to, we're just so programmed. You're ready for one song and then we're going to go to lunch. But guess what? This is too good to leave with one song. So we're going to sing a number of songs because Jesus is worthy of our praise. God is the one who brings justice and mercy. And if you don't know that, you need to find someone who can tell you what it means to come to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. God, I thank you so much for this time. And uh, just like so many weeks, I've gone over on time. (laughs) But Lord... You're something. The fact of your grace, the fact of your kindness. God, I'm glad you bring justice. Because Satan and sin has brought hell on earth. And yet you are the conquering king. You are the one who comes in. You are the holy one, the set apart one the one who will bring all things right. God, you are not the puppet master. Satan is. You don't force these people to choose you, You, but you've given the ability to, and you've given them the facts to do so. It's their choice. And oh Lord, I pray that we, this week, that today, we would choose to walk in you because you are the conquering king. The one who brings peace and the chaos of this world you know we struggle to grasp you but I just pray in the remaining time we have that we would sing it out in you to help us to understand how to sing your praises Lord you are God and you bring justice and mercy in the precious name of Jesus we